Have you ever thought of starting a podcast, but not been sure where to start or which platform to use? Podbeam is the platform for you. And there's no better time to get started than with our exclusive free month offer, which you can get by signing up using our affiliate link, www.podbean.com slash debatedpodcast. That's www.podbean.com slash debatedpodcast. We at Debated have been using Podbean since we started, and is by far and away the best platform. Not just because of its efficiency, but because it allows you to easily upload podcasts onto any service you like, including iTunes and Spotify. If you're a business person looking to take your company to the next level, then why not use our exclusive business code and get a month free of Podbean for businesses at www.podbean.com slash pro slash debatedpodcast. That's www.podbean.com slash pro slash debated podcast. On with the episode. Dude, we are going to energise the country. We need to wake up and smell the coffee. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined once again by Torin Wilkins, director of the Centre Think Tank, our partner, to discuss a new paper published recently entitled Expanding Furlough, including more people in the CJRS and the CEISS. Welcome back to the podcast, Torin. Lovely to be on, Will. Um, so the first question that I'd like to ask is, um, what prompted you to write this white paper? So we did a a paper before uh, looking at people who had originally been excluded called Excluded to Included. Uh, And we we spoke to a lot of people and they were in, there there are a myriad of different ways that people have been excluded from these schemes, given how they were designed and given the complexities of the tax system. So we were looking at all people with different types of jobs. And essentially I got into that one because of course, you know, we had people in our own organization who had been, you know, excluded from these schemes and people that I knew, you know, I still have friends from the Liberal Democrats, some of those were excluded. And the more we started to talk to people, the more we realized this was genuinely something huge because so many people we knew, you know, had been excluded from these government schemes. So it really started off, you know, talking to those people Hmm. and then sort of looking at the different groups and the different sort of sections of people that had been excluded. And that showed, you know, the pure, you know, breadth of the number of people who had had been excluded by these schemes. You know, we're looking at, um, in our calculations, somewhere around 5 million people. Um, So we are, we, we sort of ended up realizing how big it was and then going, okay, we, we kind of need to write a solution about this. You know, we became a think tank because we were there to try and create these solutions um, that other organizations weren't weren't focusing on. And some of those are a bit like bathroom breaks, which are, you know, not really a typical thing that think tanks focus on. Mm. Also stuff like this, where we went and said, look, we're going to try and find a plan for as many of these people as possible because we know them, because, you know, they are our friends, we work with them, and actually we need to ensure that these schemes that they are going to be paying for out of their taxes, they are also included in. Now, um, one of the um, central points uh, to the paper is creating a new access point to those who've been 
refused furlough by their employers, but otherwise meet all the um, criterias uh, as part of the coronavirus job retention scheme, essentially making it easier for workers uh, to get involved with the scheme. Now, why do you think that at the moment the scheme is designed in a way that makes it more difficult for workers to get involved with it and to gain access to it? Well, of course, the beginning of the paper, actually, we look at the French and German systems. And I think part of it was they they really rushed this system in as quickly as they could. You know, that it was very obvious at the beginning of the pandemic that there would be quite severe economic impacts of a large scale pandemic, not only on the public health, but also on the economy. So they rushed it out to ensure that people, you know, their jobs were secure. Um And so I think it was done with good intentions. And I think what they did was to try and copy the German model uh, as far as possible uh, in the sense of ensuring, you know, even in the German model, it is still down to those people who are employers to claim for the scheme on behalf of their workers. Um, The thing with the German scheme is it had been in place for a very long time. uh, And as a result, people knew, okay, if if I apply for this scheme, I will not only stabilize the economy, which it did in 2008, but also they were looking at it and saying, well, normally we have to to pay this much for it and, you know, give these contributions. And those were cut during this pandemic. So actually they were paying and, uh, you know, into the system less than they normally would uh, for retaining employees. So part of it comes from that, which is I think they, they had to rush it into to progress and, you know, put it in place. Um, and, and I think as well, it's, it's due to time. It's due to creating such a system in such a short period of time will mean there are always going to be things that aren't included that perhaps in hindsight should have been um, because the, the biggest thing there was, you know, ensuring stability for the economy. Um, so, yeah, I 100% think it was, it, was, it was time and it was also remembering that we don't quite have the same entrenched systems like other countries do. Um, now, you mentioned um, that the scheme was rushed into place because of the situation with the pandemic. Do you think that part of the reason that it was rushed into place is that there wasn't an already existing infrastructure uh, that could properly deal with the scale of the problem? And do you think that this is a lesson that we're going to have to learn moving forward, that we need to ensure that there is an infrastructure there to deal uh, with issues uh, like this, if there is another situation like the coronavirus pandemic, obviously we hope that there isn't, but in case mm. there is. Yeah, I, I, definitely. I mean, one of the things I think, there are certainly lessons we can take to say this is how we build a scheme in the future better. But I, I think something like this in the long term would be very helpful. Again, Germany has been in place for almost 100 years now. So they, they've used this for a long time. The German system came about slightly differently. I think it's the best in terms of looking what this would look like long term, not just as a short term retention scheme. Is long term, they used it because, of course, during the winter, working hours would go down. So then what they could do, rather than laying off loads of jobs, was to basically make sure that their workers partly subsidized by the government and it gets them through crises. And of course, that's what happened in 2008. In the UK, I think we'd be looking at something slightly different. I think 
we need to look at something uh, like a minimum income, negative income tax, whatever you want to call it. That style of ensuring people who are unemployed get a wage, I think, is is to begin with, um, or, you know, at least a sensible amount of money uh, that puts them above the poverty line. I think that's one part of it. But also looking into those kinds of systems, at least that they can be ready if there is such a crisis um, that essentially tops people's wages up. Because I, I think there's certainly an understanding that, you know, we are different from the, the German system. We don't quite have the same issue with, you know, working times just plummeting completely during winter. But also, I think we need that ready, at least in the background, uh, if one of these issues were to occur and a strong safety net, because the issue, whether it be with the German system or the UK system, is that some people fall through the gap. So we need to ensure that they you know, have that adequate amount of money to live on. Um, now, you mentioned um, the proposition of ensuring that uh, people who are unemployed at least continue to get some form of regular income. Do you think that this in the future could be a means towards uh, ensuring or implementing a kind of UBI? Or do you think that that would be something that you would uh, uh, not want to... Um, comment on at, at this point? Do you think it would be too early to imagine something like that evolving out of this particular type of scheme? I can't see it evolving under the, the Conservative government we have now, possibly under Labour. Um, I think the, the biggest thing for me is looking at it, you know, aside from party politics, which I think often, uh, you know, we end up going into. And I, I think that actually just looking at UBI as a sort of standalone idea, I think it's all going to really come a lot down to cost um, and whether it can be costed, especially, you know, if you try to put it in in one big foul swoop, uh, the costs are going to be very large. And even some of the smaller costings I've seen would be about, you know, enough to double the education budget sort of thing. So it's it's that question of affordability, right? Which is, you know, we've crunched the numbers of, as much as possible and, and looking at the affordability of a scheme, um, you know, like a minimum income that only goes to those who are unemployed, I think is, is you know, fairly, fairly doable um, and would be, you know, a, a step forward in that system. Now, you know, universal basic income, I, I think, again, that's where I need to see the figures that show that it is worthwhile. Mm. And, and also the fact that you're, you know, you're gonna, if you get rid of a lot of the the issues with uh, a minimum income, which is that you have to essentially give it out only to certain groups of people. Um, you are with a UBI, then going to have to try and tax that back if you don't want to be losing billions of pounds. So that's going to be the the next thing. Is of course, you know, whether that can be taxed back, how long it would take to actually implement, because it would be quite a large sum of money to push into the system. You know, all at once. Um, so there are a lot of questions that I still have about UBI. You know, there are, of course, you know, in London at the moment, they're looking at a possible trial of it. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, I think on that side of it, I'm, I'm very interested and intrigued. And if, if the trials turn out well, then, you know, I'm kind of interested. But at the moment, it's simply just a case that I haven't really seen the evidence there that would show me this is a, you know, a good system that we can use. And this is one that will be, you know, we work workable in the future. Um, now, one of the other major points in um, the paper 
is in relation to the self-employment income support scheme. But before we turn to that, uh, how well do you think the government have handled the issue of uh, payments towards the self-employed as opposed to those who um, uh, might be easier for them to deal with under the furlough scheme, i.e. those working for uh, companies or industries who aren't self-employed? Well, there are, there's a big difference between the two. So if you look at employees, it's, it's basically one large group of people. And that's what we estimate to be maximums of 800,000. On the self-employed side of things, and uh, you know, even including freelancers and, and areas like that, you you are looking at a much, much, you know, a, a huge group of people overall. Mm. And, and there is also a huge number of different ways that people can get, you know, cut out of the system. Um, and in that sense, I think it was harder to design a system that all of those people would be, you know, allowed into. But I, I think that there was also there was a lot of scope to realize that if you put in a cap where you can't be earning over the past few years over £50,000 or you have to have more than 50% of your income from self-employment, there were people who were going to be cut out of those schemes. Um, you know, those, those were things that were added in rather than things that weren't thought about. Hmm. And I think in that sense, you know, if you're saying to someone, you're earning £50,000 in these last few years, therefore we're not going to pay you money, when actually there's an entire pandemic going on. So that £50,000 that they were earning then, for a lot of these people, has, has turned into nothing. They aren't earning very much now because the pandemic has hit. But they're using past earnings to really give an idea of what they're earning now. So I think there's a lot there where, in some of it, it was very much a case of this probably hadn't been thought of. But I also think there were areas where they added stuff in there where those people were eligible in every other way, aside from this, this you know, group of sort of um, caps and limits that the government put in themselves. So I think that's where I, I am quite uncomfortable with what the government did, because I think they should have known £50,000 for the last few years isn't £50,000 today. Hmm. Now, on the issue of the cap, um, you said just then that you didn't think that it was particularly well thought through. Why do you think they decided to choose the figure of 50,000 specifically? It's a really good question. And I wish <laughs> I wish I could find out um, because it's a lot of it is very much sort of just taking, you know, 50,000 or 50 percent. Um, and the 50 the percent figure as well is a bizarre one. Um, £50,000, I think they it simply is, oh, they were earning a lot as being self-employed, so savings, I assume, that they would say they've got the savings for this or something like that, you know, and they can, they can support themselves. Um, you know, or maybe an assumption that they had to therefore, you know, probably be an online business as well as an offline business. I, I've really struggled, and, and, you know, I've been doing this for the past few months now, but I've really struggled to see the justification behind it. Um, you know, I, I remember one person saying to me that, um, who we spoke to on our original paper saying, you know, uh, that they thought that, you know, the, the government sort of thought they were all earning 200,000 pounds, mm. you know, and all of these people were really just earning, you know, huge amounts of money and, you know, obviously didn't need the help or anything else like that. And you've also got to remember on, on the furlough scheme, there is no cap. You know, mm. you can be earning whatever you want. You, you still get the money. So I think there was a, a large disparity between how they, they you know, looked at people who are self-employed versus how they looked at employees. 
And even then, that didn't mean that the employees got away with it because a lot of them are still excluded as well mm. uh, and have been refused furlough payments. So, yeah, I think the, the simple answer to your question is I would really like to know. Um, I would love to have a chat with someone and find out what the, 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 the thought behind that was. Um, now, in, in the paper, as you um, mentioned, you're arguing for a change of the cap uh, so that people who are um, earning, uh, anyone earning £100,000 uh, can claim access to the scheme. And if someone's trading profits are above £100,000, uh, then they can gain access to the scheme, though um, the overall SEIS payment would be uh, reduced by 25% for everyone, uh, for every £25,000 they, uh, they earn over this limit. Mm. How many people do you think that that change would include in the scheme that are currently excluded? So that's going to be a very difficult question. And it's a difficult question because there are lots and lots of different factors involved. So we've looked at sort of rough numbers for them. And, you know, we, we've looked at, you know, about uh, what is it? 1.7 million. So mm. basically over a million people overall for this that could be included. Now, the difficulty, of course, is you have seen differing uptake rates so that not all of those people who are actually eligible will then uh, go and claim for this. Um, you have seen, you know, differing levels of um, people who are included because, of course, it's very difficult to work out uh, exactly who would be earning within those ranges. Um, so, so all of that, we've, we've tried to sort of say it in the paper, which is we have maximum estimates for these groups, you know, and 900,000, I think it was for the, the 50,000 uh, pounds and 50%. So, you know, we're looking at large figures, but again, it's very, very difficult because this, we, are, we are working on data that has been collected at the end of the day for other purposes. So, for instance, the 800,000 figure for refused furlough, we've looked at the people who were on payroll um, at the beginning of the crisis and aren't at the end. So they would have at some point be el been eligible for the system. So there are stuff that we can use to sort of make a, a rough estimate of, okay, this is roughly the number of people that would be refused. But of course, we're trying to develop systems here that include as many people as possible, but also are, are very much a step forwards uh, rather than being the eventual goal, which is why we've said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to say, we'll, we'll lift it up to 200,000, but make sure it tapers off so there isn't just one massive cliff edge for these people so that if you're earning one penny over 50,000 pounds suddenly you you get nothing and if you're earning one penny below then suddenly you know you you get a grant mm. so you know we've, we've tried to fix it in a large way um but again it's it's very difficult to know the exact number of people and we've done some workings out looking at you know a number of people who turn out and done different figures based on that which is why we've got three different costings in there um rather than just one is because it is quite volatile numbers, but we've it, the the statistics give us an idea of how many people would be able to benefit, and and you know how many people are likely to actually go for these schemes. How well do you think that uh, the schemes as they exist at the moment have worked in conjunction uh, with other uh, benefits, for example, universal credit? We had a lot of people, especially from uh, the refused furlough support group, who said to us quite simply that they had been declined for uh, furlough support and then were declined for universal credit. So 
it says a lot about the current system that you're able to not only just fall through one safety net, but two um, when they're in place, let alone usually on universal credit, um, the likelihood that you can fall through those cracks. And so, you know, the government's done some good things, you know, and increasing universal credit payments, of course, has been one of them. Um, how long that lasts, we don't know. But at the moment, it seems they have tried to improve the system slightly, but it was always working off of a fairly broken system. It's never been particularly popular. Um, and for good reason, you know, the sanction systems and all of the rest of it have made universal credit uh, an unpopular welfare system. So, you know, I personally don't think they've done a particularly good job on the welfare side of things. Um, and they really built that before the pandemic. But now, you know, the the fact is it's failures have kind of shown through, um, given that so many people are needing to rely on it. And we've, you know, I've spoken personally to so many people who needed to rely on it and haven't been given it, you know, and, and I think that's the biggest thing about getting these payments is it's not just redressing an issue with, you know, the furlough system. It's also these people who haven't got anything from the government, you know, and they are going to be the ones like everyone else who pays their taxes after this and, and pays back what, you know, that massive amount of money we've have spent on the furlough scheme and the, the self-employed income support scheme. Now, um, this paper has got quite a lot of attention. Uh, it's been covered in the Yorkshire Post and other publications, and you have re- received a response from the Treasury. What was their response to this paper, and how do you feel about that response? It's quite an interesting response, actually, because it essentially, uh, unlike some of the other responses pretty much said, you know, that they have done a good job and that they've given some support to those who've been excluded um, in different forms. Um, What they didn't do was to say, you know, this is a bad paper or, you know, we don't agree with these conclusions or anything like that. So the good thing is the Treasury, therefore, you know, it will have seen it, will have seen the paper. Um, And so, you know, I think in a lot of ways, I'm quite happy with it because I think for me, and as we said in our our response to the Treasury was, you know, now is that point where we say, okay, we are willing to work together to try and find a solution, you know, and it won't be perfect for either side. But if we can work together, then we are very happy to, um, essentially, and to try and find a solution because there have been so many months now that, you know, if this is it, there's also, um, you know, the the DISS being proposed by the APPG. you know, if if we get something, if they get something, we will be happy if if there is essentially a a deal on including more people in these schemes. So I was quite happy by the response. I think it was it was a fair response, which is yes, the government has done a lot, and our proposal is we need to do a lot more besides. Now you've also made some um, future suggestions at uh, the end of the paper including um, backdated uh, CGRS payments um, being included in the cap of the total pay between March and the start of the back payments. How much of a, a financial hub do you think that back payments would be? And how much do you think it would cost? So in terms of cost, we've said about 7.5 billion taking into account past, uh, you know, turnout for these these schemes and mm-hmm. uh, the number of people likely to be eligible. Um, 
as always with these costings, we've we've done a high figure of about forty billion, um, and then you know taken into account slowly, you know what the the likely turnout is and the number of people who are likely to take the scheme up, um, and the likelihood of people being eligible and so on and so forth. So that's that's sort of the the two two sides of the coin in terms of how much it could be either way. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that. You know, as I said before, we're going off of a lot of data that's been collected for other reasons. Gives us a good idea, a rough idea of how much. Mm. Um, but again, and you know, we even included some funding sources in there. You know, there's been money returned from supermarkets and stuff. So there are some funding sources as well, um, not just you know proposals in terms of how much this will cost. Um, you know, and in terms of how much these will help people, uh, at the end of the day, it will help them a huge amount because a lot of these people haven't been receiving any money. So had they been eligible for this scheme, they would have received this money anyway. This is just essentially about going, you shouldn't have been excluded. And so therefore, we're going to give you these backdated payments to ensure you do actually have that money. Because some of these people are getting into debt. They aren't able to afford. Um, you know, some of them are genuinely unable to, you know, even pay their weekly shop. So we, we are looking at people who desperately need this help, should have received this money. Uh, and therefore, we're looking at it and saying, well, you know, the, the best thing that the moment they can do is give them the money they should have got in the first place. Now, I want to turn um, to another group that you're on the steering committee for, Comprehensive Future. And there have been a lot of arguments because of the uh, lockdown that we're under at the moment about when schools uh, should return. When do you think would be the earliest possible date, given the um, current uh, rate of vaccinations and the falling figures, for schools to return to in-person learning? I think it is a very, very difficult one at the moment. And I'm very cautious about jumping too far ahead and saying exactly when mm. for the simple reason deaths are starting to fall but only very very slowly and i don't know whether that is just at the moment it could well be that we get figures and i hope not but we could get figures tomorrow that bump it up even further mm. so i think deaths definitely need to be to be falling at that point um vaccine rollout at the moment is good but we're currently mainly handing out first doses of the vaccine mm. you know there are some areas that have been going you know incredibly fast on vaccine rollout rollouts you know in wales powys county you know has been doing you know incredible work i've even heard about it mm. um having having been an ex-student in wales um you know they they've been doing fantastic they've got a huge percentage of their population uh inoculated but the biggest thing now is I think it's about those second vaccine doses um, and seeing what happens with people who have only got one because that really hasn't been trialled and tested. Um, and I think that's that's going to be the, the key thing and also ensuring that teachers are vaccinated for this because students themselves, a lot of them can't be vaccinated. So I think if teachers are vaccinated, then yeah, I think that that would be okay. I think at the moment it's just about ensuring as many people are vaccinated as possible because in this situation, as I have been from the beginning of the pandemic, I am very much in that sort of situation of being, you know, caution first because we are dealing with a pandemic and we do have this new strain, the new South African strain 
that doesn't look particularly good. And I think that also is a consideration. So hesitant to put a, a date on it, but I think there's a lot of things that need to come together. And there almost needs to be a checklist, I think, um, to decide when when this happens, because there are certain criteria that have not been met yet. And falling cases is brilliant, but it's I think it's going to take a little more time to see whether that is a, a permanent fall um, and what the effects of this, the the new variants are. Mm. Um, now, of course, also because of the, the lockdown and the pandemic, uh, not just school opening and closures have been impacted, but also exams have been impacted. What impact do you think that the pandemic is going to have long term on uh, the educational needs of people across the United Kingdom? And how best do you think the government can negate any negative impacts on pupils going forward in successive years? It's, it's a really difficult one because I think the the overall impact, and, and as you said before, I mean, I'm, I'm on Comprehensive Futures Steering Committee, but the overall impact, especially on disadvantaged and poorer students, is going to be uh, not particularly good. Um, is a, a bland way of saying it at the end of the day. It's, it's not going to be particularly good because whereas if you're on a richer household, you're more likely to have a laptop per person. You know, that's, that is not the norm for everyone, sadly. And so those people who are in poorer households who don't have those laptops and don't have quiet environments to do work in, you know, all of these things build up and it makes it incredibly difficult. Um and and so in that sense, I think there there will be a huge huge effect. Um, and at the end of the day, it's something we will be looking at very closely to watch how how that effect pans out. Um, because you know we're we're looking at the moment. I think it's good that we you know we've cancelled most exams. I mean, I said last time, uh, I wish that had included the eleven plus. It actually in Northern Ireland for the most part now has included the eleven plus or what they call the transfer test. But what we need to ensure is that. Essentially, we're putting the resources into education now to ensure that people aren't, you know, completely disadvantaged by this because, you know, it will have large effects on uh, the wealth gap. It will have large effects on, you know, students being able to, to do their best, even if they're from disadvantaged backgrounds. So I think there is, there is a lot of work on, on that side of things to be done. Um, and I think, you know, there are, there are areas... Um, at the moment where the government is thinking about, you know, uh, essentially putting a, a lower limit on um, A-level grades that people mm. can be getting in order to go to university and stuff. And I, I think it, it is not the right time to be looking at those measures. You have far too many kids from disadvantaged backgrounds who would have done far, far better. Mm. Um, but will this will be something that affects them for quite a long time. So I think, yeah, that that is not something to be considering now. I think in terms of what we do next, I think we should have done a lot more to, you know, improve online education. Mm. Um, and I know that especially, you know, I've just finished university. Um, my partner is currently in university and was saying, you know, how good the, you know, online lessons that they were able to do there were. So I think there's, there is also that side of things, which is online education. If we ever get into a situation like this again, we need to have, you know, a good system on standby. Um, which I think will help and, and you know, bringing classrooms um, forward in terms of technology anyway. 
is, I think, a, a very useful thing. So it's a lot of things. It is going to have a big, you know, disadvantaged uh, effect on a lot of people. But, you know, I think there are there are measures they're trying to be, bring in at mm. the moment that just aren't aren't very helpful. And I think it's just, it's it's investing in education and it's making sure we build a better system. You know, things like getting rid of the 11 plus, things like improving our comprehensive schools, mm. you know, all of those things, those things that we have, you know, in the, the center set of aims <laughs> at the end of the day, what we've been talking about for a long time, that's that's what we think needs to happen now. Uh, we're coming towards the end of the podcast, Torrin. It's been great uh, to speak to you. And I have one final question for you. Now, the last couple of questions I asked you uh, were related to Comprehensive Future, which, as you uh, said and I've mentioned, you're on the steering committee for. Uh, so my final question to you is this. If you could make the perfect school lunch, what would it include? <laughs> The perfect school lunch. Do yes. you mean nutritional value, or do you mean that I'd want to eat? You know, just as in, as in, like if I if I was a school kid going to school, what would I want to eat? Or was is this a you know an actually good lunch that contains not a hundred percent sugar? And you know, um, well, you can well, you can take it either way. I mean, you can okay. Say, I'm gonna I'm gonna yeah. say uh, probably. I mean, custard is amazing. So maybe. <laughs> Uh, but also, I'm going to say tiramisu. Mm. No sandwiches. None of that, right? <laughs> um, just tiramisu and, you know, and uh, actually that's alcoholic, isn't it? Wouldn't be, no, that's not, <laughs> that is not a good idea. I think, I think we're going to go with um, jam roly-poly and custard then, so I don't get kicked out. <laughs> I think that I think that that is a uh, a great suggestion, and I think that there would be uh, millions of school pupils up and down the country who would agree with you and would want that as their uh, as their uh, school lunch. If people want to find out more about the paper and more about you, where should they go? Uh, at Centre Think Tank on both Twitter and Facebook. And we've got a new website now, which is uh, www.centrethinktank.co.uk, uh, which we spent a long time uh, going over and making it look all fancy. So you can see us either of those two places. Excellent. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. No worries. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast, or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, I hope you listen to the next one.